0: This is Michael Reinhardt, welcoming you to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. We are led by our two hosts, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. This podcast is sponsored by the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a 50% discount on membership to our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use code POD. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and please feel free to leave us a rating or comment.
1: This is Jody Westby, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerry Buckley. Today, we have the honor of having Christine Wilson, Commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission, with us to join and discuss national privacy legislation and other issues that are pushing privacy to the forefront and changing perspectives. Christine was sworn in as a commissioner of the FTC in September 2018, and her term expires on September 25, 2025. Commissioner Wilson previously served at the FTC as Chairman Tim Morris, as Chief of Staff during George W. Bush administration, and as a law clerk in the Bureau of Competition while attending Georgetown University Law Center. In between her periods of service at the Bureau, Wilson has practiced competition and consumer protection law, both at law firms and as in-house counsel. When nominated, she was serving as Senior Vice President, Legal, Regulatory, and International for Delta Airlines. Prior to joining Delta, Christine was a member of the Washington, D.C. antitrust practice groups of Kirkland and Ellis and Ome- Melveny and Myers. Commissioner Wilson, thank you very much for to making time to be with us today. We've been through an extraordinary time in the past 18 months dealing with the pandemic and remote working and contact tracing and the invalidation of the Privacy Shield Program and the enactment of comprehensive state privacy laws that move the U.S. toward GDPR. So we feel like we're in a rush here of activity. I'd like to start out by asking whether you have seen a shift in the balance of power between consumers and businesses since you've been on the commission, and especially through these recent events.
2: So first of all, thank you, Jodi, and also Jerry, for having me here today. This is one of the topics that I am most passionate about. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this mad rush of events with you and to talk about the potential path forward. In terms of your question and, and whether I've seen a shift in the balance of power between businesses and consumers, what I would say is that the pandemic has had significant impact in the way that data is used and analyzed, and it has, I believe, increased the risks for consumers. And Mm -hmm. so I think even before the pandemic hit, consumers had very little insight into the ways in which their data were collected, used, monetized, shared, and deployed. Mm -hmm. And that led to an information asymmetry between businesses and users. And the issue, of course, is if you as a user cannot assess the costs and benefits of using various products and services fully you can't make informed decisions and the, the collection of your data and the ways in which that data is used and shared and monetized and deployed may have an impact on your cost benefit analysis of whether to use that product or service and for that reason i think it's important for for consumers to be able to make those decisions on an informed basis. The issue with the pandemic, of course, is that people had consented to certain collection and use of data prior to the pandemic, but with the onslaught of the pandemic, a lot of the information that had been collected began to be deployed in new and different ways. And of course, what you consent to in ordinary times may not be knowing consent in extraordinary times. And so I think there was a a significant shift in the last 18 months that, uh, that further imbalanced this relationship between businesses and consumers with respect to information asymmetry and lack of transparency that, for me at least, has increased the urgency with respect to getting federal privacy legislation across the finish line.
1: Yeah, you know, when Cambridge Analytica happened, I said at the time, people finally understand the power of big data. And I think that was a real eye-opener for individuals, and they proceeded to get more and more aware. And then, as you said, through the pandemic, we had a lot of increased awareness. But I'm wondering, because so much of this is through these big tech companies, do you kind of see them falling in a separate category from businesses in general? I mean, do, Should we look at businesses with private? Should we look at business as usual? And then what big tech
2: platforms are doing with data? So let me, let me circle back first to your point about Cambridge Analytica. One would think that that would be a significant eye-opening moment. And I think it started us in that direction. And then I think there was a series of exposés done by the New York Times that was incredibly eye-opening. But I think it is very difficult for consumers even today to fully grasp the scope of information that is collected from them and then how it's used. And so I think the more we can shed light on those issues, the better. And the Federal Trade Commission currently has what's called a 6B study that is collecting a lot of information from social media and other companies to, to fully analyze how those companies collect and use information because it does remain a black box for much of our society. And so we hope that that study can shed more light on that. But to your point, you know, is it just the big tech companies? And the answer is no. Think about the loyalty program at your grocery store or at your local CVS or Walgreens, which is collecting information about every purchase that you make. And so I think the information is being collected from us in so many different ways through so many different avenues that are not limited to the so-called big tech companies. I think this is an issue that impacts essentially every facet of our lives to the extent we are in any way interacting with a third party, whether it is in person or through electronic devices. Yeah, I agree.
1: Let me bring Cherry in. Cherry?
3: Thanks. And Commissioner, let me join Jodi in uh, thanking you for making the time to join with us in this podcast episode. Uh, You've been a privacy thought leader for some time, and your comments last year regarding privacy and the pandemic and the Fourth Amendment protections are especially pressing. Last spring, at an event hosted by our friend Dan Solov, you set forth some very thoughtful concerns regarding public-private partnerships in pandemic monitoring and uh, that are applicable in other situations as well. I wonder if you might share some of those concerns with our listeners today.
2: So, Jerry, thanks again for having me. And, uh, and then also, I should, uh, I should say in reference to, to Dan Solove, what an amazing job he does being a thought leader in this field. The event that he held last year was wonderful. His events are always uh, some of the leading events in this sector. And I always learn a lot when I read his emails and newsletters and, his, uh, and the publications on his website. So to answer your question, absolutely. At the start of the pandemic, we saw an explosion of public-private partnerships. These partnerships deployed government and private sector information collection and surveillance powers to monitor and enforce quarantines and to conduct contact tracing. These efforts were fueled by extensive collection and analysis of sensitive data about people's movements and health. And there are a couple of notable examples that you may remember. Apple and Google developed a contact tracing platform that relied on Bluetooth, not location, to detect proximity to other devices and to alert users if they have come into contact with infected individuals. Microsoft and the University of Washington also announced a contact tracing app that used GPS location data to allow public health authorities to post alerts, disclosing the locations visited by a person diagnosed with COVID-19. And we saw even more intrusive means of using technology to collect health information and to track and contain individuals in jurisdictions around the world. In some places, it, it was very much a sense of Big Brother is, is watching you. And for someone whose mother was an English major and made her read George Orwell's 1984 and, uh, and Brave New World growing up, it was... It was sort of a, a scary moment. But the interesting thing is that consumer trust in big tech is very low. And because of that, the adoption rate of a lot of the apps that were being rolled out and made available was similarly low. There was a very interesting survey in the Washington Post that found the adoption rates were going to be very low precisely because of this lack of trust in tech. Even more troublingly, there were rumors that for people who chose not to download those apps, the operating systems pushed those apps through in later versions in any event. And if we think more broadly about the shift that we experienced in lifestyles during the pandemic, you know, there were tech solutions for public schools and universities to facilitate learning online when the pandemic first hit last March, when we went into deep lockdown, I had three college students, two daughters and a niece with me at our home in West Virginia. And our great room was transformed basically into uh, into a library. And all three of the young women had their cameras on attending class. It was mandatory for them to have their cameras on. And at the time, I could only hope that my house cleaning skills were up to stuff because <laughs> my my living room was uh, was being viewed by lots of other folks um, <laughs> across the country. But the point is, students had to consent to the video classes, and they had to consent to being monitored while they were taking their exams, and and they didn't have a choice. And this year, many colleges and universities reopened to in-person classes, but they're requiring students to use apps to track the classrooms and dormitories they visit so they can be notified if a person in their vicinity was diagnosed with COVID-19. And these systems claim to be anonymous, but even if they're not, students who want to attend college in-person must consent to this monitoring. And we see the same thing in the employment sphere, right? Remote work became essentially ubiquitous beginning last March. And there was an interesting article last week in the Washington Post about software that some employers are requiring, which track an employee's computer keystrokes. They take screenshots. They record audio or video while the employees are working from home and consent to this software as a condition of employment. And obviously, these are Disturbing and unwelcome developments that give us uh, a lot of food for thought, not to mention a lot of cause for concern.
3: No kidding. And, you know, it's going to follow people back to the office. Everybody knows that. I mean, people are going back to their offices, but of course, because of the Delta variant, who knows what lies ahead? There's going to be a lot of work in your office, continued communication primarily electronically with many other people. And in that trend you've described, that monitoring and the and, uh, big brother aspect of things is not going to go away. Uh, so a very insightful observation. You know, uh, the FTC recommended in 2012, nearly, 20, nearly 10 years ago, on a bipartisan basis that the Congress should pass comprehensive privacy law. It hasn't happened, as we know. At the same time, the FTC also urged technology companies to implement best practices to protect consumer data, to treat privacy as a default setting, and to implement privacy by design throughout product and business life cycles. Now, we all know that Congress hasn't managed to pass the privacy law, but what about the agency's recommendations to businesses? Have some of those taken hold, and are they making a difference?
2: I would certainly hope so. I think one of the great things about the Federal Trade Commission is that we are not just a law enforcement agency. We have a significant strain of R&D capability embedded in our DNA. And so we do a lot of gathering information from stakeholders and then turning that information into consumer education and business education. And at the beginning of the pandemic last year, we fully deployed those consumer education and business education capabilities to, to help consumers and businesses understand the new challenges that the pandemic was bringing to their doorstep, obviously with respect to the collection and use of information, but also on, on a much broader scale, combating COVID scams and that sort of thing. But as you mentioned, the FTC has amassed a substantial body of learning and consumer and business education over the years. I had the privilege of serving as chief of staff to Tim Muris in the early 2000s, as Jody mentioned. And it was at that time that we really got the privacy and data security program underway at the Federal Trade Commission with the uh, the Microsoft and the Eli Lilly Cases and they were, I think, a sea change for the business community. And since then, our wonderful DPIP shop within the Bureau of Consumer Protection has continued to bring cases and flesh out policy, and to provide really great guidance, both to consumers and also to businesses about expectations for how data should be treated. and And you mentioned some of those, Jerry. So the use of privacy by design, building privacy into every stage of product development. We have guidance on our website that talks about how to do that. As I mentioned at the start of the pandemic, FTC staff moved quickly to compile several excellent guidance documents, both for consumers and for businesses relevant to consumer privacy and data security during those uncertain times. In particular, we had some COPPA guidance for ed tech companies and schools during the coronavirus. We published using artificial intelligence and algorithms and video conferencing, 10 privacy tips for your business. And over the years, going beyond the pandemic-specific issues that, that we've been discussing, the FTC's privacy and data security orders have taken pains to lay out key elements of privacy and data security programs. And these orders generally require that companies establish, implement, and maintain a comprehensive privacy or data security program with these key elements. So first, leadership and oversight. Companies should designate a qualified employee or group to coordinate and be responsible for the privacy program. Second, risk assessments. And this is so key. Companies should assess and document at every stage of product development and throughout the business operation, the internal and external risks to the privacy, confidentiality, integrity, and use of data that could result in unauthorized access, collection, use, destruction, or disclosure. Third, policies and procedures. Fourth, transparency. Fifth, training and awareness. Sixth, monitoring and verification, and so on. And while I believe that many companies do use our materials and attempt to be good stewards of consumer data, the lack of federal privacy legislation is problematic because right now businesses don't have clear rules of the road on the data they can collect and limits on the sharing and monetization of that data. The fact is, the Federal Trade Commission's jurisdiction is limited. We can reach either unfair or deceptive acts or practices but that is definitely limited jurisdiction. And for that reason, I continue to to advocate for federal privacy legislation. And then Jerry, can I just circle back to one other oh, question sure. that you raised that I did not address? Uh, you, you mentioned the public-private partnerships and the impact on our Fourth Amendment rights. And I wanted to just go back to that because obviously, Consumer privacy for the sake of consumer privacy is important, but the stakes are increased when we start talking about our civil liberties. And when you're analyzing Fourth Amendment issues in the case law, the question is, did the person whose information was collected or whose property was seized have a reasonable expectation of privacy? And if the answer is yes, then there could be a violation of the Fourth Amendment. If the answer is no, you don't have a Fourth Amendment issue. In this day and age, when so much of our information is collected, when that information collection is ubiquitous and nothing is left unknown about us, it gets more and more difficult to argue that consumers have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And the upshot is when the Fourth Amendment test is applied, what we find is that our Fourth Amendment rights are getting eviscerated precisely because we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy anymore. And we're not just talking about the Fourth Amendment. We're talking about freedom of religion. We're talking about freedom of association. And these are issues that arose during the course of the last 18 months, not necessarily in connection precisely with the pandemic, but along with some of the other events that our society experienced. And for those reasons, I think it's even more important that we pass federal privacy legislation. Our civil liberties are being infringed, and it is irresponsible for Congress not to address this problem soon.
3: I will inject my own view is exactly the same. And uh, I I only wish that, we, you know, I worked on the Hill for a number of years in the Senate, and uh, I only wish that we could find a way to come up with a bipartisan solution in this area, where, as you pointed out, there is so much at stake. But, Jodi.
1: Commissioner, one of the things I try to do in my work is link privacy and cybersecurity. Privacy impact assessments do help companies understand how their operations can impact the privacy of consumers, and they may result in privacy policies and, and controls. But these steps often do not identify the gaps in cybersecurity programs that enable the data breaches to occur. I have always credited the FTC with doing more to advance the concept of enterprise cybersecurity programs than any other federal agency besides NIST. The FTC's consent decrees from way back in the beginning articulated requirements for a cybersecurity program. And now since the 2018 LabMD decision in the 11th Circuit, the FTC's being more specific in its orders. Can you describe to our listeners how the FTC is approaching data security orders to protect consumer data?
2: Great question. So I would say for starters, I would encourage folks in the audience to review FTC consent orders because they do provide essentially a body of common law on this topic, as Professor Solove has called it. In the absence of comprehensive federal privacy legislation, the FTC, I think, has built an incredibly impressive record of protecting consumers' privacy and data security using our General Consumer Protection Authority and under narrow privacy statute. We've brought over 65 data security cases, over 60 privacy cases, about 100 FCRA cases, more than 30 COPPA cases, 20 Graham leach bliley cases, and 130 cases involving spam and spyware. And I think that uh, that that collection of consent decrees and cases does provide an excellent guide. Uh, And so some of the ways that the FTC approaches data security orders has been consistent over this massive encyclopedic body of consents and, Mm -hmm. and orders that we've compiled. But as you note, in some ways they have changed. It has been the preference of the Federal Trade Commission for the most part to avoid being prescriptive, uh, to avoid saying you need to use this type of technology in order to preserve data security because obviously technology changes and the Federal Trade Commission does not have a comparative advantage in this area in terms of specifying precisely the tools to use to preserve data security. But with the LabMD case, we were forced to become more specific, more mm-hmm. descriptive, more prescriptive in in our cases. And so, as you mentioned, our orders are more specific now. So, examples of ways the FTC has added more specificity about the companies, about the steps that companies need to take to implement a comprehensive data security program include. Conducting yearly employee training, monitoring systems for data security incidents, implementing access controls, and inventorying devices on networks. We also require service provider oversight, including monitoring how service providers collect and share consumer data. And these requirements create specific and enforceable safeguards. Second, The orders increase third-party accountability. Our orders are now requiring more rigor in assessments by third parties, and they detail the steps that the assessors must take to support their conclusions. And third, and this really started with our Facebook settlement, orders elevate data security considerations to the C-suite and the board level. So similar to Starbanes oxley senior officers must provide annual certification of compliance to the Federal Trade Commission, and companies are being required to annually present written information security programs to their board or similar governing body. And so those are just some examples of the ways in which I would say in recent years, we have tried to amp up the detail and to also provide more comprehensive guidance with respect to the FTC's expectations in this area.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's making a big difference. Thank you for that. One thing that the FTC at some point might consider is just simply saying that a company subject to a consent order has to comply with one of the leading cybersecurity standards, whether it's ISO 27001 or it's NIST 853 or it's 800-171 or one of the others that are are well-known globally, that would give the companies an option and say align with the standard. And then the companies have to meet the controls required by that standard. And they can't just, instead of the FTC having to create their, their list every time, then it allows you to be flexible and move with the standard because the company has to stay up to pace with the standard. That's something that the DTCC has done uh, with in the financial sector in requiring cybersecurity programs, and I thought it was a good idea. Let's move to a more global discussion. The EU's extraterritorial application of its privacy laws and requirements for cross-border data flows has now spurred the UK and New Zealand to adopt their own version of standard contract clauses, which just makes you want to groan. Um, So now we're getting global fragmentation of cross-border data flows. The EU is also regulating cybersecurity and its proposed regulations for AI and online platforms. Meanwhile, we know that the states are actively charging forward with comprehensive privacy laws that resemble the GDPR. So I'm wondering, I mean, do you see a common path for legislators and regulators to position the U.S. to do global business? Should we just finally capitulate and say, let's just align with the GDPR? What are your thoughts on that?
2: So I would be concerned about just capitulating and aligning with GDPR, I think, The GDPR has obviously lots of great aspects to it. It does embody some of the the key recommendations that the Federal Trade Commission has made over time with respect to data minimization and so on. Uh, So, for example, both GDPR and CCPA push for business accountability, transparency, providing consumers with reasonable access to the data companies maintain about them, training, and so on. But GDPR also had the unfortunate side effect of chilling competition. And so there were studies that were done with respect to the GDPR experience that demonstrate that uh, there was a decrease in venture capital investment and an entrenchment of dominant players in the digital advertising market following full implementation of GDPR. And so mm. I think the US needs to step forward with federal privacy legislation that reflects the uniquely U.S. experience. And so I think it should embody a concern for continuing to foster competition and innovation, protecting First Amendment rights, uh, while at the same time providing protections for consumer privacy, I think it is unfortunate that the US has not stepped up in this way for a very long time. I practiced solely antitrust law. In the late 90s, there were very few jurisdictions that had antitrust laws or competition laws, but the Department of Justice commissioned a a group of learned scholars and practitioners to figure out what international competition policy should look like going forward. And I remember as a young associate, a partner called and asked me to do work. And I said, I can't. Unfortunately, I'm working on this International Competition Policy Advisory Committee work right now. And he said, there is no such thing as international competition. And now, of course, we have more than 130 jurisdictions with competition laws. And the U.S. was instrumental in helping to set up the International Competition Network and to create a dialogue among jurisdictions about best practices for the implementation of competition law. How do we implement competition law in a way that is economically sound, that furthers competition, that benefits consumers, that doesn't chill innovation, that doesn't discriminate between foreign and domestic companies, and so on. And, and the U.S. has been such an amazing leader in the field of antitrust, creating best practices around the world. And our absence from that field in privacy is so stark. And we have ceded to other jurisdictions, most notably the EU, the privilege of erecting frameworks and that, by default, becomes the model to which all other jurisdictions are moving. And there are there are issues with GDPR. You know, it, it was a great first step. It is a great straw man, but I don't think this is an area where the U.S. wants to cede leadership. And that's just another reason why we need our Congress to step forward and pass federal privacy legislation.
3: And you know, uh, thank you, Commissioner. That that's. Your observations about the irony of the fact that we are both the place where the where the digital revolution originated, we have one of the we have the largest participation in that space uh, in any of any country in the world. We have been known for being the creator of laws and standards, uh, and that's been the foundation of our economy and and. Uh, and making this a place to work that's good to have a business. And yet we, we have this huge gap in the privacy space, which is kind of startling and stark. I, I'd be interested in your thoughts as to why it exists, but I also wanted to ask, you know, we, we one of the issues that's, that's standing in the way of a solution uh, in the Congress is federal preemption. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that. The other issue, uh, if you'll allow me to pile on with issues, is the question of whether there ought to be a private right of action. So, could you give some thoughts on that, if you would?
2: Sure. So, I think it, your your first question was why do we not have federal privacy legislation? That's a really interesting question. Because the Federal Trade Commission, on a bipartisan basis over time, has recommended that Congress pass federal privacy legislation. And even in the very polarized environment in which we currently find ourselves, essentially everyone agrees that we need federal privacy legislation. Every stakeholder from A to Z, regardless of where on the political spectrum, agrees that federal privacy legislation is necessary. And so the question becomes, why hasn't it passed? There are two supposed sticking points, and you touched on both of those. The first is preemption. How do we deal with preemption? And the second is private rights of action. Should we have a private right of action? And in order to delve into those areas, and instead of just continuing to ask why Congress hasn't passed federal privacy legislation, but to help Congress, hopefully, humbly <laughs> reach that goal, I launched a project with Professor David Hoffman at Duke earlier this year to take a deep dive into preemption and private rights of action, to look at the ways other statutes grappled with those issues, and to figure out the different possible solutions that policymakers could land on. and get federal privacy legislation across the finish line. And I should note that Cam Carey at Brookings is the person who inspired me, at least, to to take on this project. Last summer, he and some others proposed model privacy legislation that had, um, had some compromise approaches to preemption and private rights of action. And I found that very interesting in terms of helping policymakers understand Neither of those issues needs to be all or nothing. Preemption, in fact, typically occurs on on a sliding scale. Our research in conjunction with the Duke Project revealed that federal statutes that preempt an entire field of law are actually rare. It's more common for statutes to establish the federal floor and then allow states to pass more stringent laws. So the federal law creates a minimum standard. But different approaches are taken in different types of statutes. And we've compiled a database that is available on the Duke website showing all of those different approaches to preemption. And then with respect to private rights of action, here's a really interesting topic that we grappled with during the study. Private rights of action get you one set of remedies, but they may not get you all of the different remedies that are necessary to address the harms that occur with respect to violations of privacy. And so there was uh, one interesting article that prompted us to think about remedies far more broadly. And so instead of limiting ourselves to private rights of action that may do nothing more than line the pockets of trial lawyers, Let's think about multiple remedies. And to go back to that article that I mentioned, they made three points. First, remedies should be tied to policy goals. So what are the goals? What are the harms that you're trying to address? Second, this article argues that no one remedy can successfully promote even a simple goal. Therefore, to have an effective law, you need to have multiple remedies. And third, this article emphasized that intermediaries and third parties play a powerful role. And so I, I think that we need to approach the question of private rights of action not by answering yes or no, but by first broadening our lens and thinking more comprehensively about appropriate remedies to harms that may arise.
3: Thank you for your very thoughtful answer to both of those questions. Uh, and uh, that study is worth uh, further review by our audience.
1: Well, thank you very much, Commissioner, for the generous amount of time you've given us today, and for sharing your perspective. I think it's a, a straight one, a fresh one, and on the right course. And I'm sure our listeners are really going to value this particular episode. So, thanks again.
2: It is absolutely my pleasure. This is a topic that I could discuss ad nauseum. It is the topic on the consumer protection side of the house about which I am most passionate. And when I became a commissioner, the one goal I set for myself on the consumer protection side of the house was to help advance federal privacy legislation in any way that I could. And obviously, I am one human being. I do not have a role in Congress. But if there is any way that I can work to convince Congress of the importance of this issue, uh, I, I want to I take that opportunity to do that. And so to the extent this conversation is yet another way of nudging Congress to do the right thing, then I am pleased to have been able to participate today.
1: Oh, well, thanks
2: again.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the show and want more content on the issues we cover, you can visit ADCG.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use code POD at checkout for 50% off membership. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.